Welcome to the Athletic MBA Show, Monday through Friday, on the Athletic Podcast Network. Just a quick note for our listeners, we did have some technical difficulties on the audio front in this episode with Stan Van Gundy. The sound quality, not up to our normal standards, but keep in mind going forward, that's only going to get better. Bear with us on that front for this episode only. We appreciate it. With that, enjoy the episode with Stan Van Gundy. Welcome to Tampering. We're this beautiful game of basketball that we all love and talk about every single day. Sam Hamick. Uh-huh. uh-huh. To be able to bring uh-huh. people together. What do, baby? Reportedly at the center of an NBA investigation into tampering accusations. And the message to executives in the league is stop talking about players on other teams. What did I do? The charges filed. Impermissible contact. Was right or wrong? Tampering charges are really difficult to prove. You know me, I talk. Very <laughs> <laughs> awkward to even talk about. I can't even mention teams anymore. Actually, what I like to play when coming to rank. Trial, you're one with tampering. They're always ahead of the rules. It's not rocket science. I have tampered with the guys. I didn't tamper. I'm just telling you what happened. I'm just telling you what happened. Hello and welcome to the Athletic NBA Show. This is the Tampering Podcast, and I'm the host, Sam Amick, NBA reporter at The Athletic. With me this week, one of my favorite guys in the business, somebody I haven't talked to in quite some time and was fired up to, to have on the pod this week, the one and only Stan Van Gundy, uh, commentator, analyst for TNT, NBA TV, former head coach, of course, of the Miami Heat, Orlando Magic, Detroit Pistons, where he led their front office as well. And Stan and I get into a whole lot of things, not the least of which was his incredibly fascinating decision last month to jump on Twitter. Nothing like doing it 14 years after its creation. Uh, if you are not following him at Real Stan VG, he is a must follow. He is as unfiltered on Twitter as he is on every other platform. And you get a little bit of everything. You get politics, you get hoops, you get, you know, stories, all of the above. Uh, we're going to get into that later, Stan. First of all, Stan, thank you for joining me. It's great to have you on here. I, I got to get your thoughts at the top about what's front and center. The Orlando situation, the NBA, obviously trying to pull off the end of the regular season and the playoffs. Call it a bubble. Uh, we all have our concerns. You live in the Orlando area and have for quite some time and know the lay of the land extremely well and what's happening right now out there. Where do you fall on this, Stan? Uh, I know you're concerned because I've seen some of your tweets. You know, How do you see this grand experiment? We're right in the middle of it here. I mean, you know, cases are rising. I think we had 12,500 new cases yesterday. Our our deaths are up. I mean, this is, it's not good in Florida right now. Um, Disney has reopened, which is, in my mind, only going to make it worse. People coming in from all over. Um, But I think what the NBA has tried to create um, is probably as safe as it can be anywhere. I mean, they're literally trying to put people in a bubble. And I've talked to a couple of the coaches in there and, you know, they're saying, I, don't, I can't imagine how it could be any safer. I mean, they, right. you know, they're, they're keeping people apart and, you know, they, they truly are in a bubble. So I will just say this, with the amount of planning that Adam Silver and the NBA have put into it, Sam, if the NBA can't pull this off, with their resources and their attention to detail, then we need to shut down sports until this thing has passed or we have a vaccine because I don't think anybody could have done a better job than what the NBA has done to try to keep people safe. Where is your head at as a coach? Because a couple things come to mind for me. For one, your players and your staff members have never been 
through this kind of ex- like deployment type experience where you are away from family and friends for a long time, but you have a, a lifestyle change here that I think is substantive. And then within that, you got to figure out how can I get my players to to actually care about what we're trying to do on the court here. To me as a coach, it seems like it's about as unique a challenge as, as any of these guys have, have, have faced. There's no question about that. I, you know, quite honestly, I think it's overwhelming for a lot of them. I mean, the basketball part's the basketball part. You know, you come together, you're, you know, it's like a long extended road trip and you go to practice and you go to games and you prepare and coaches go back to their room and watch film. And, and we got all of that. Um, you hit on it. I, I think the mental health of guys um, is going to be a major challenge. And even the mental health of coaches. I mean, say what you want about what they provide them with in the bubble, Sam. You, you've taken away their freedom. I mean, these are some of it. These guys being a lot of them wealthy, um, young, healthy, prime of their life. They, they've had probably more freedom than most of us because they're not, you know, inhibited by financial concerns or anything else. And now they literally have no freedom. I'm not asking people to feel sorry for them. Look, they made the decision to go into this because they wanted to protect as much of their money as they could. And they're lucky to have that. So it's not a matter of sympathy. It's just a reality. They don't have any freedom. And we haven't seen a lot of complaints or anything yet. They haven't even been there a week. Right. You know, Orlando was the first team in, I think, and they went in a Tuesday of last week. As we go on and you haven't seen your family and you haven't seen friends and you're there by yourself, it's going to be significant. I think we're going to have people who, quite honestly, are going to get to the point that they just want out of there. Right. Or they are going to go to great lengths to try to bring people into the bubble. The challenge is immense, but it's it's hard. But you know what? To me, what's missing from that calculus is, oh, okay, for that kind of money, I would I would do it no problem. Well, the calculus involves the fact that the vast majority of these guys have enough wealth already that they can be okay. I, maybe not the vast majority. There's plenty of younger players who need this paycheck right now and, and whose careers you know, could potentially get somewhat derailed if they don't keep the progress they have going. But you can judge these guys all you want too, but I, I, I want to keep drilling down on the competitive aspect of this because, and I don't think this has been talked about a lot. I, I keep putting myself in the player's shoes and thinking that, okay, when you end up hitting the hardwood and you're now playing and you have this discomfort in your mind from the environment around you and you have the rust that comes with having not played five on five basketball for a very long time. Uh, what if any ripple effect do you think there could be on just the, the way that guys compete, the intensity, if you've got two bigs down the block who, who have been, you know, taught for months and months and months to not share sweat with another human being. And, and now you've got to compartmentalize that and try to get the best of, of your opponent. How do you think guys reconcile all of that? I think that part will be okay because, again, I think different than what these guys have been doing, say, on the outside is they're going to know that the people they're playing against have been tested every day. And, you know, so I think they're going to get a level of confidence with that. I've certainly over my career seen how guys will compete in practice. So I think the competitive level will be high. I think there'll be a little bit of energy missing, Sam. I mean, the crowd provides a great deal to an NBA game. 
right. and a great deal of energy, particularly as time goes on and they're in that environment that most of us can't even imagine for a long period of time and they're getting bored and depressed and things like that, I think the crowd could really help. Um, but I think the competitive level will be high. I think the intensity will be high. Um, I think by the time we get to the playoffs, I think the level of play will be pretty good and, and we'll see good competitive basketball. Do you have, and I should have asked earlier, what are you going to be involved here from a commentating standpoint? We don't know exactly our schedules yet, but yeah, yeah I'll, uh, I'll be there doing games for Turner and maybe NBA TV also. On the inside? Yeah, I think the plan is on the inside, you know. So um, it's a little crazy for me. I live 45 minutes from the complex. I would right. encounter fewer people if I uh, went down, went to the game, and came back home than I would staying in a uh, hotel there. But, but again, I mean, whatever the system is, they're not creating it for each individual. They're creating it for you know, what they think is best for the group. And I, I respect that. And, and and certainly Turner is doing everything they can to uh, help make it the best they can for all of us. They've been tremendous throughout this whole, this whole thing. I mean, you know, like unlike ESPN and some other places, they didn't even, you know, cut our salaries or anything else. I mean, Turner is a fantastic organization and, and um, so I'm ready to do whatever it is that uh, whatever it is that they want. Well, with that being the case, I mean, you're you're the perfect guy to ask. How do you feel? I mean, you're 60 years old, I believe, Stan. And in terms of the science, you you then fall into that category of the the Mike D'Antonis and the Alvin Gentrys and, you know, and other assistant coaches where there's been this discussion about health. You know, you have the realities that come with certain age brackets. How are you feeling about that aspect? I mean, personally, I'm not really that worried about it. I think the setup, we're going to be – broadcasting from a little higher, from what I understand, not courtside. We're not going to have any contact with players or coaches. We're even going to be separated from the play-by-play guy by plexiglass. Okay. Um, so from our standpoint, not bad. I, I do worry about some of the coaches, to be quite honest. I mean, you know, sitting in a huddle where guys come over breathing hard and everything else. Again, I think everything's okay until – somebody gets it right and then you know it could go it could spread through that bubble pretty darn quickly so and and look i'm not again i'm not saying anything negative here about what they're trying to do i I think if you had adam silver on here he would tell you he's worried about it i mean i think everybody's worried about it i mean you're trying to make the best of a tough situation i think that you know, the players, the owners, the networks, everybody wanted to, you know, preserve the finances as much as they could. And so Adam and the NBA came up with the best solution possible for for everyone. But I still think everybody's concerned. I, I think everybody involved is concerned about what could happen. Right. No, and I'm with you. And listen, we'll, we'll get to the hoops talking a little bit here. I want to Go back to what I hinted at a few minutes ago. I, I got to hear this story about about Twitter and the fact that that when I end, was looking to reach out to you, truthfully, I looked up my uh, my address book and I'm figuring out which number still works. And, and I wasn't sure which. I had three of them, as you know. And and then I look on Twitter and I see, oh, there's Stan. And I was slow 
to pick up on the fact that, you know, there's that little thing on your account that says joined and, you know, it says when you joined and it says July, 2020. And, and so then I start going through the feed going, man, this is fantastic. We got unplugged Stan Van Gundy uh, at real Stan VG for folks who are not following you. Now, listen, our, our political leanings are definitely in line with one another. And so we are all to a degree guilty of, you know, I try to be cognizant of confirmation bias. And so, um, you know, that's part of this. But whether it's your views on the president, whether it's your views on the health situation and the way that, that government is is handling it and not handling it in some instances or the basketball stuff. I saw a tweet the other day where you were lauding praise on, you know, your former player, Richard Lewis, for how great of a teammate he was and just different stories. You know, how did you, you know, or I guess why did you decide to finally jump on at this late stage? And is there some kind of backstory there? My wife and I are pretty involved politically, you know, supporting a lot of candidates, uh, Senate candidates across the country, House candidates in Michigan, where I still have two kids, and in Florida, and then all of our local races. Um, we've got involved in, because we're, we want to see criminal justice reform, we've got involved with a district attorney's race here in Florida. We call them state's attorneys, and we were actually on a call uh, a woman named Monique Orell is running for the state's attorney in Orange County, which is Orlando, which is where everybody is right now in the NBA right. bubble, and the county near them, Osceola. And she's very reform-minded. We were on a call with her advisors and some of her key supporters. And they were talking strategy, and so much of it revolved around social media now which is something I haven't been on, Sam. I right. mean, you know, I'm right. old. I wasn't raised on that. Right. Um, I'm more of a mainstream media guy. Even podcasts are new to me, you know I mean? Right. right. So, and now you're and, Zooming, Stan. Come on. This is yes, great. I know. Now I'm Zooming. And so I wrote my wife a note while people were talking in that meeting. And I said, should I get on social media? Uh, my wife is. She's on Facebook. I mean, and she's used it to support people. And she said, yes. So my son helped me get on uh on Twitter. And my main motivation was politics. But understanding that the only thing I actually know anything about, really know anything about, is NBA basketball. And that more people would probably follow me because of that than anything else. I definitely had to, you know, have some basketball content on there. And I'm hoping that then people will, will pay attention to some of the candidates and issues that that we're supporting. So, so that was the that was the motivation behind it, um, you know. And uh, I've had a lot of warnings from a lot of people like you about, like, hey, watch out. But I'm just going to try to stay above the fray, and you know, I'm not going to get into battles with anybody. I'm going to try to support uh, the issues that I think are important. It's an e- ecosystem unto itself. Where I think, if I was in your shoes, the thing you're going to have to that's going to have to be normalized is that because of your profile, whenever you say something of note, it will inevitably lead to headlines from, from all these different, not even necessarily mainstream media outlets, but, but essentially websites that are looking for new headlines for folks to click on. I saw one, you know, as I was preparing for us to talk that that just very plainly stated that Stan Van Gundy uh, essentially had found the solution for criminal justice reform. <laughs> yeah, my son saw that this morning, and, and I didn't. I said there's two things that we have to do before we can even begin talking about uh, 
right. the way to, you know, get to reforming racial justice, you know? Right. And, and so, God, I mean, I'm, I'll certainly spout my opinions pretty easily, Sam, as you know, yeah. but, yeah. but I'm also, I, I hope at least, humble enough to realize that I'm not somebody with the answers and what I'm really trying to promote as much as I can are people that do have more answers than I have that have spent a lot of time in their lives thinking about these problems and everything else. And so um, I've learned a lot, um, even more so over the course of this pandemic where I've had a lot of time. And yeah, I'll try to talk about some of those things, but to act like I think I have the solution to anything. Heck, I tried to have the solution to slowing down LeBron James when I was coaching. I didn't have a solution to that. And that's something I'd trained my whole life for. So if I don't have that solution, I certainly don't have the solution for racial injustice in our country. I think slowing down LeBron, as amazing as he is, that might be easier than than fixing some of these other problems. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and there's a lot of directions we could go from from the views that you've shared. You know, one tweet that that, uh, that I certainly remember Joe Biden had essentially tweeted about that this country's history was, you know, equality and and uh, and, and was kind of espousing some of the philosophies that, that allegedly were supposed to be part of the way this country was built. And, and I did appreciate how, you know, the commentary you added to it was like the general idea that we've got to be honest about the way the country was built. We've got to look ourselves in the mirror. And, and you've you've talked a lot about what's happening with Black Lives Matter. And, and that part resonated with me because honestly, as a fellow white guy who has been lucky enough to just learn and learn and learn over almost 20 years of covering this league about so many very just backgrounds of people from parts of the world that that I otherwise wouldn't have intersected with. Um, that that honesty is, I think, the the starting point. But but that's the type of stuff you've been sharing. And the one thing I think that coaching does prepare you for is blowback and sure. criticism. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think most of us who who lasted any amount of time in the business have, have certainly had to develop pretty thick skin. Like it, it's hard to be a sensitive, thin-skinned person. And uh, look, I, I mean, I, I'm just. I'm not interested in getting in battles with people. I'm not interested in attacking people either. I mean, I've made a few sarcastic comments about people and things like that, but I'm not really. Have you interested. blocked anybody yet? Have you have you tried the block button out yet? No, yeah. no I haven't blocked anybody, right. and, and I'm not really interested in reading stuff about myself anyway. I mean, it's, sure. it's about the issues, and I sort of want to keep it to that. And, and I'll certainly point out in races with candidates where candidates I'm supporting have different policy positions than people they're against. You know, I mean, I think it's fair to point those things out. Like in Florida, we have the worst unemployment system in the country. The pandemic has ravaged us like it has everyone. But here, people are really in trouble because in central Florida, we have the least affordable housing of any major city in America. And on top of that, we have the worst unemployment insurance program. We pay the least for the least amount of time. Well, we've had Republican rule in this state, both houses of the legislature and the governor for 20 straight years. Okay. I think it's fair to point out this is a problem created by the Republicans. I'm not, this isn't a personal attack. I'm not saying Rick Scott 
is a bad person. I have my own opinions on that, but I'm not saying that stuff. I'm not going out after people personally. I'm saying this is a policy that they created, and you as a voter need to know that. And if you're happy with that, go ahead and support them again in 2020. And if not, we need to make a change. That That's what I'm interested in is getting some change. I'm not interested in getting on there and trying to rip people apart. It, it, you know, people make a sport of it, and it's more serious than that, and I'm not interested in that. Stan, I wonder, is this strictly for you, you know, trying to use your profile and your voice to do some good, you know, in line with your views, or is it something where are you are you putting your toe in the water to actually, you know, engage in the political realm yourself? No, I've got no interest in that. I, I want to be involved in the political realm. I want to support really good people, progressive people who have policies that I believe in. Um, and a lot of it, quite honestly, is, again, I mean, I, I dedicated my life to coaching basketball. And there are people out there who have dedicated their lives to solving some of these problems. Those are the people that I want to support. I, I have enough humility. I don't have much, but I have enough, <laughs> I have enough humility to understand there's people who have a lot more expertise on these issues than I do. And those are the people that I want to see in office. You know, I try to educate myself. But man, I'm not I'm not close to the level of expertise of the candidates um, that I that I support. And you know, I mean, I've had people say things to me like, you know, uh, about oh, they want to you know they want a candidate they can have a beer with. And I'm thinking the people I've had a beer with, I don't want them running my country. <laughs> I'm sorry, I enjoy having a beer with them, right. and I certainly would not support anyone who's not smarter than I am. That Actually, is damn sure. If they're not smarter than I am on these <laughs> and things, if they're not more knowledgeable, if they haven't thought more about them, if they haven't put more time in, Sam, I would have zero interest in them right. because I do a lot of reading and stuff. So does my wife. But come on, compared to what the, I learned from those people, those are right. the people that I want to promote. I think that's my best role um, to use whatever resources I have to try to promote people who I think can make a difference in our country. That line, it, it's been around since all of time, it seems like, the guy you can have a beer with. I, last night we were watching Hamilton on uh, on Disney+, Plus, and they, they actually dropped that regarding Aaron Burr when he was going up against Thomas Jefferson back in the day. And I'm with you. Being quarantined with people, you uh, you learn a lot more about them, and some of that is how they smell. And if you are a man and you're looking to smell good, you've got to check out Hawthorne. I got some of their soap, body wash, deodorant, and lotion in the mail in a package, really a beautiful package. And it is great. Got this giant bar of soap that I've been using. It not only exfoliates, but it makes... Your, your skin just smell and feels so good. It's easily the best soap I've ever owned. And I've owned a lot of different soaps, but this is easily the best soap. And it's a great gift for Father's Day. So they've got cologne, they have soap, they have all kinds of body wash and lotion. They have like hand cream and things like that that'll just make you smell great. And I think one challenge that, that men have is when you walk into a store, maybe you're going to find cologne, maybe you're going to find a good smelling soap. I don't know what I'm looking for, and I'm sure that you guys don't either. 
And so Hawthorne makes it super easy. You take a two-minute two minute quiz when you get onto their website. That's hawthorne.co. When you go to their website and you take the quiz and it actually asks them like random questions and some questions specific to you. And it kind of spits out this algorithm that gives you your kind of soap and your cologne scent, which is really cool. And it is so helpful to me because I don't want to have to choose that. I really don't care about choosing what it is. But Hawthorne does it for you and it does it right. So, listeners, check out Hawthorne at Hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E dot C-O, not dot com. Hawthorne.co. And use the promo code down to dunk to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co. Use the promo code down to dunk to get 10% off of your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. Let's pivot a little bit. So since you're not heading down the political road personally, I really was hoping to talk about your story, your situation, and, and what you know best, which is coaching. It's been almost two years since, you know, you were on a sideline. Uh, and at that time, obviously running the Pistons front office. It's funny, Stan, I had never slowed down to, to kind of, you know, look at your situation from this vantage point. Your last two stops, essentially, they, they came with two really interesting what-if scenarios that, that kind of went two different opposite directions. You had the one where you and I intersected where it looked like you were going to be the, the coach of the Kings back in 2008, or seven rather. Uh, you end up taking the magic job that, that works out wonderfully. You get to the finals, you know, you're an elite contender and do some really good work with the magic. Then the other one, of course, is that it looked like you were headed for Golden State. Uh, and at that time, I, you know, widely reported that you were hoping to get more front office control. And that didn't end up happening. You know, then you end up going to Detroit situation and, and spending four years there. Where does that leave you now? Because we all know what you can do with an NBA team. There are a couple of openings right now. And, and I haven't heard any chatter at all about your interest level, if any, uh, on getting back in the game, just kind of career-wise and, and hoops and basketball-wise. Where's your appetite? Where's your focus? How do you see that part? I, I would love to get back and get another shot as a head coach. Don't want to do the front office thing again. Okay. Um, don't don't have an interest in that, but would love to coach again. But, um, you know, look, I, I, I can't decide that unilaterally. I, I can't go – I can't go hire myself and I don't have money to buy a team. So, right. you know, it would take some interest from the other side, but yeah, I still think I have a lot to offer. Um, I don't think my energy level has dissipated at all. Never has. Uh, I've spent a lot of time over the last two years doing a lot of basketball work, both self-evaluation, looking at what's going on in the game, revising some thoughts, things like that. I, I would love another opportunity, but I'm not, panicked about it either. I mean, I've been lucky. I've, I've had a uh, good long career. And if that's not, you know, if another job's not in the cards, well, then that's okay too. How do you fill that gap, if at all? Um, you know, you mentioned the basketball work you've been doing, uh, you know, in terms of keeping the mind sharp on the game, the analyst work certainly is going to, I would think, fill that void to a degree. But in terms of your, your daily rhythm, and just the way that that kind of basketball mind of yours functions and works, how do you, how do you stay fresh on that front? Well, I think, and I've learned this from my brother because he's been obviously at the analyst part of it for a long time now, for 13 years. And I think he has always approached the game as a coach. And I think that's the way I've done. And that's sort of what you bring to the, 
to the game when you when you come at it. Like I'll be watching games, and Sam, I, I'm sitting there and diagramming plays and things that oh, that's a great last second play. Oh, that's right. great out of timeout. That's a great defensive scheme. Or even in my own mind, thinking, you know, I might try this. I might guard the pick and roll that way and so I don't think that ever goes away from you I know it hasn't for my brother I mean you know he he still thinks of the game that way and even down to how you approach players and how you communicate all of those things I think you come at it as a coach and and what fills the gap of not having a job is is the analyst role and that part's been great because you know I it's something new, and I'm trying to get good at it. And it'll take a long time to get good. You know, I watch people like my brother who are really good, and I know I'm nowhere near that. But I've had people willing to help me. I worked with Ian Eagle this year. He's one of the best in the business. Yeah. And not only is he great, but very willing to mentor and give feedback um, Scooter Vertino at TNT and Tara August. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot of people who trying to help me get better, you know, and I said to him early on, one thing we're used to as coaches is criticism. It doesn't bother me. In fact, I need it. I need right. somebody telling me what I need to do better. And, and I've had a lot of help. So it's fun. And, and I'm trying to be as good as I can at that job right now. But the way I think about the game, I think will always be as a coach. Sure. Go back a little bit. You say pretty definitively that you you focused on coaching and that you don't have interest in the front office role. And now, if any, you know, for anybody who doesn't remember the backstory and the context there, you know, certainly with the magic, there were interpersonal dynamics that that everybody knew that essentially when when all the dust settled you weren't thrilled with the way that went down. And that seemed to essentially kind of inspire your desire to have more of a voice on the front office level. And then the Pistons experience. I mean, one thing I give you a lot of credit for is you never went into that with the kind of any sort of authoritarian approach. I mean, you tried to hire a lot of people, you tried to get a lot of voices in the room. So it never hit me as a situation where, you know, a guy who thought he had all the answers and just wanted to have the steering wheel to himself. You didn't take that approach, but you know, you had one playoff appearance in those four years. And then now on the back end saying that you don't necessarily have an interest in, in that kind of a role anymore. You know, how do you know why, I guess is the question. Well, you know what? I, it, my views didn't really change. I, I, I'm a coach. That's the way I've always come at it. I've never had any great desire to be in the front office or to have the control. You know, I, I was lucky. Uh, my job in Miami, I had come up in that organization. Then I came to Orlando and I had tremendous relationship um, with my general manager, with Otis Smith. I mean, it was a great, great job. Right. Um, and it was really my time out. You know, like you don't talk to other coaches a lot, Sam, when you're coaching. Like, you know, say hello after the game, give the little wave, and, and that was about it, you know. But when I was out, I would talk to these other coaches from time to time. And I realized how many of them were in situations where the front office and the coaching staff were not on the same page. Right. You know, um, and the situations just weren't good working situations. 
I wanted a situation where everybody in the building was in the, on the same page, pulling in the same direction. And so the opportunity in Detroit was appealing, not for a power grab type situation, but I would have say on everybody that was in the building. And there was one person at the top in charge, which meant that there were no reason for people to pull in opposite directions. I think what happens in a lot of organizations, particularly when things are difficult, is the front office wants to blame it on the coach. The coach wants to blame it on the front office. There's not a lot of trust or anything else. I didn't want to be in one of those situations, and I knew I could avoid that in the situation I was in. The reason I wouldn't want to do it again is what I hadn't counted on and what bothered me the most is I had responsible for around, I was responsible for around 50 people in basketball operations. And that's a great responsibility. Their, their lives and their careers were in my hands. Like you right. needed to do well. And, you know, particularly when we eventually got fired, trying to make sure that those people you know, could get on to other jobs or had money to get by. I just didn't like that. I was, I was overwhelmed. I really felt for the people that had worked there. We'd gotten to know their families, right. had gotten close to those people. And, and quite honestly, um, I'm very lucky I had the experience because I worked with some of the best people that I've ever been around, but I don't want that responsibility again. I, I just, I want to get back into it and just coach basketball where my responsibility is to fewer people, just my coaching staff and the players and not all of these other people that you've got to worry about how they've been affected and, and how they will be affected. Um, and that's the main reason I, I don't want to do it again. And it's not where my passion is. You know, I, I think some people's passion is, you know, I want to get in and I want to put the pieces together and put a team together, you know, in terms of the right personnel. And, and that's incredibly important. That may be the most important thing in a franchise. And that's, you know, why the guys who are great at it are the guys who build great franchises. My passion is to get onto the court and try to bring the people that we've brought into the organization together on the court and make the product as good as we can with the people we have. That's where my passion is. And that's what I would like to do. I want to do it in a situation where I feel like we're on the same page. I say to coaches all the time, a lot of coaches think what makes a job is how good's the roster, how much chance do you have to win? And I, those things are important and everybody can make the decision on their own. I tell coaches at every level, the only thing that matters to me are who am I working for and who am I working with? Right. And I think people outside of sports can relate to that. That's what makes a job. Now, the salary is the salary. The benefits are the benefits, okay? That goes without saying. But what makes it a job you like to go to every day are the people you're around. Who do you work for? Who do you work with? If you enjoy that, the job's a good job. And I've always approached it that way. It was what I learned from my father, you know, growing up. And it's proven true to me. And so I want to be in that kind of situation again where I believe in 
you know, the guy who hires me, the GM, the owner, whatever, and we're all on the same page until the day they fire me. And I've had, but I've had those in Detroit. People say, yeah, you regret going to Detroit? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, it didn't work out the way that I wanted. Um, I was certainly disappointed when I got fired, but I had a good working situation there. My owner was good to me. Um, he supported me up until the day that he fired me. It's the way it should be. You know, I these things where, you know, you read about these coaches going through, there's rumors in the paper and we'll evaluate it at the end of the season. Like, come on, just support each other. And then when you get to the point, you got to make a change, make a change. But while we're there, like, let's pull in the same direction. And, and I had that. I had it in uh, Orlando. I had it in Detroit. And so I, I consider myself fortunate. For you, what is the closest that you've come to, to that kind of professional utopia? Like, essentially, when was your favorite time uh, as an NBA coach? Well, I mean, for me, it was in Orlando. I mean, part of it was, you know, obviously you can't separate the success from things because the job's hard anywhere. And when you win, it's a lot more fun. And, right, and we right. won a lot in Orlando. But I also, I was coaching great players. Otis took, you know, the character of guys very seriously. And so I had the opportunity to work with people that, I loved working with, I mean, there's some of the people that I respect most in the world to this day. And so that was great. And, you know, Otis and I had a great understanding right from the beginning. And that was, you know, we would talk to each other about everything. And at the end of the day, when it was a front office decision, he would make the final decision. When it was a coaching decision, I would make the final decision. So, you know, he, let me do my job. I got input from him all the time. But if we disagreed at the end of the day, I could make the decision. Same thing. I'd give him an input on players. Right. At the end of the day, he didn't agree. We'd go with his decision. It was a tremendous situation. I, every day of that job um, was a joy until, you know, that last month after the season. And, you know, it, it just didn't work, but it was never a problem with Otis and I. I right, mean, right. you know, so the people that I worked with, the guy I reported to, and the people that were around me every day, it was absolutely fantastic as a working situation. And every owner, look, has every right to make whatever changes they want. And, you know, they're writing big checks and they should make whatever changes they want to make. So I've never had a problem with that. There's just a way to do it and a way not to do it you know, when it comes to that. And, and so it didn't end well in Orlando because of the way they handled it. Whereas in Detroit, you know, it was Tom Gores and me talking. Right. That's what it was. And it was the way it should be. You know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't behind your back and it wasn't gutless or anything else. So um, at the end, Detroit was better, but the coaching situation was at its best in Orlando. I mean, Stan, to this day, you know, the Dwight situation remains for me probably the most wild, surreal thing I've covered from a media standpoint, partly because of the the length of time that it kind of, the way that it dragged out. Uh, so much of it was public. Like you said, there were leaks all over the place and, and stories left and right. 
and, and you're in the middle trying to navigate it. And, and because we haven't talked in a while, I was also, I was really curious to know, considering that now fast forward to 2020 and, and by all public accounts, you know, you and Dwight have gotten on good terms and, and he's just a guy that for better or worse, you're going to be, you know, eternally tied to. I just wondered how surprised, if at all, are you that you guys, I mean, is it just a testament to life and how time goes on and, you know, let bygones be bygones that you guys seem to have gotten to a, a decent place now? And, you know, what went into that? I mean, there was a time when his handling of that situation had a pretty marked effect on the way that you were perceived, you know, in this little kind of space that we all share. And it was it was tough and the dynamics were really challenging for you. Well, first of all, the, you know, what happened in that whole thing was, as you said, there were rumors flying around for a long time. And Rick Buecher wrote a big story in the whole thing. And, you know, Dwight was trying to get me fired. And, and you know, I have a lot of faults, but I stay pretty focused on my team and my try to keep my thoughts on what's best for my team. And that situation had become a huge distraction for our basketball team. You know, was Dwight trying to get me fired? Would they fire me? Though We needed to be concentrated on trying to play basketball and win games. And I had just gotten tired of it. And I, and I knew that it was weighing on our team. So I thought that the best way to handle that, and this was my thinking at the time, is let's just get it out there. I knew for a fact that, you know, that had happened and he had asked the owners to, to fire me and the whole thing. How much more conjecture can you write about, Sam, if once you know the answer? Right. You know, once you know, that was my thinking. Now, the way it ended up, it ended up because Dwight was out talking to somebody else and he came into my interview yeah. not knowing. Had I known all that was going to happen, I would have brought it up at a different time. It ended up being an embarrassment and it was unfortunate. But as far as my feelings for Dwight have always been good. Like, listen, the one thing you know more than anything as coach is your career depends on players. And there have been a lot of guys who have played a lot of great basketball that have given me success to build a career. But probably the two that stand out are Dwayne Wade in Miami and Dwight Howard in Orlando. And, and so my feelings about Dwight were always good. I've, I've always, even in that time, I've always defended Dwight. I've always been a supporter of his, um, everything else. And I give Dwight a lot of credit um, for the fact that I think most of us, and Dwight certainly has done this with me, most of us, when we can step back a little, we'll judge somebody based on the entire body of work, the entire relationship we've had with them. Because, listen, I, I don't care who it is, even our wives and stuff, right? I mean, if you're going to pick out a single incident, you can make anybody out to be right. somebody that, hey, I'm not going to talk to that person again, okay? Right. But I think most of us have the capacity to judge somebody on the whole. And I, and I think on the whole, Dwight and I's relationship was a good one and one that was very successful for both of us. I mean, Dwight had five great years, the five best years of his career, first team all NBA every year. And that's what a player-coach relationship is all about. Now, Pat Riley used to say it all the time, a player-coach relationship 
is a business relationship designed to get a result. Like you are hired by the owner, both you and the player, to get a result. And if you want to know the quality of a relationship, player-coach relationship, look out on the court. Is it working? And it did for us. We won a lot of games. We didn't quite get to where we wanted to go, which was to win a championship, but we got close. We had success. Dwight had great success. That's a great player-coach relationship. Um, And I think now as we look back, I mean, we both can appreciate that. I was obviously, I'm a lot older than Dwight. I think I was able to appreciate it even in the moment. Sure. Um, Dwight, I think, looking back has. But I give him a lot of credit for being willing to take what he calls as the worst day of his career and get past that to still feeling okay about me. What form did that come in, Stan? Did you guys, you know, feel the need to get in a room together and actually talk through everything that had happened? Were there phone calls? Was it just a case of, you know, again, of time passing and things falling by the wayside? I mean, what what was the communication like over the years post-Orlando? I mean, I had texted him from time to time, particularly when he was with the Lakers. You know, he was having a lot of problems with his back. and Yeah. You know, when he first went there and, and I would I would text with him and the whole thing. And then we had a time where, you know, we were in touch a lot less, a lot more sporadically. And then I ran into him. Um, God, I, I lose track of time now. A couple of years ago. Well, when he went to Washington and he had the injury and he wasn't playing, I had gone up to spend a couple of days with Patrick Ewing and watch his team practice at Georgetown. And. Pat's son had picked me up at the airport, and as we pull into the hotel, there's Dwight. We were staying right at the same hotel, so we stood and talked for, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes there and caught up on his life. And then this year, um, I had a Laker game and was able to see him before. And And I think, look, I mean, we have a lot of great memories together. It was a good time in his career. Um, it was a good time in my career. And I hope... I hope, and I think, but I, Dwight would have to talk about that, but I hope he knows that I've always cared about him as much as a person as I did as a player, and I've tried to support him, and, and certainly when I talk about him as a player, I still don't even think he's gotten the credit that he deserves, and he's heard sure. me say that many, many times. I'm guessing, to that point, the, the debate that's getting louder every year about Dwight as a Hall of Famer, what, which side of the, uh, of the ledger are you on that one? I can't even believe there's a debate. Yeah, that's what I assume. I mean, I I, I can't. I mean, just go through who's in the Hall of Fame. And, I mean, the guy was first team All-NBA five straight years, okay? Like, you know, he's been in how many All-Star games now and everything else. He was a defensive player of the year three times. Um, I think people forget what he was. I mean – and well, and if we're being honest, they also he's had long stretches where his his likability factor was very low, and and that isn't part of the discussion. But a lot of these discussions happen in a public space where I think human nature comes in, and, and that becomes part of the the, uh, the situation. But but look, I mean, if we're not if Dwight Howard's not going to go in the Hall of Fame. We need to go through there and start ripping people's <laughs> No, I mean. No, I know. I, I mean, come on. Like, I agree. Guy, um, and, and look, the one thing I've been around is great centers. I mean, I, 
listen, I'm as blessed as anybody maybe that there's ever been in this league as far as that. I was an assistant, well, and then a head coach when he came back. Alonzo Mourning, Shaquille O'Neal, Dwight Howard, Andre Drummond. I mean, you know, like I've had great centers at every stop. It's not like I've only had one big guy. And and here's the thing with Dwight. I mean, it's so funny, the stories that come up with people. And you're someone who writes stories and does it at a very high level and does great things. But it's always intrigued me the perception that people have. So one of the big things on Dwight when I was coaching him, now this was before the stuff at the end, was he smiles too much. He doesn't take the game seriously enough and everything else. That was one of the things. And we played Boston two years in a row in the playoffs, beat them to go to the finals one year, um, round two, but on our way to the finals. And then the next year they beat us in the conference finals. And, you know, if it was, if he were more like Kevin Garnett and the whole thing, right. And then, you know, ESPN runs the series on the bulls. I forget what they called it. The last dance thing. Yeah. And they talk about Michael Jordan in the playoffs between games playing against the Celtics in the playoffs, going to play golf with Danny Ainge, with Danny Ainge. Okay. And then they talk about him being all out all night in New York going to Atlantic City. Right. And then they're saying Michael's the greatest competitor that's ever played. And I'm not saying that he's not. You know, I'm not trying to demean Michael Jordan. I'm just saying if Dwight Howard had done those things, right. they would have killed him. Because what we're ultimately judging on is what happens on the court. Then we right. create the story it's, around yeah. that. And so – I'm, I'm watching that thing with Michael Jordan. I'm going, he played golf with Danny Ainge? <laughs> like Dwight Howard would have been crucified right. in the media because of that. And and people don't realize. I said to him at that whole time was going on, I said, now wait a minute. Kevin Garnett was in Minnesota for 12 years, and they won two playoff series, both in the same year. Like – don't don't tell me like Dwight Howard to question him as a competitor to me was ludicrous. I mean the guy it's gotten worse. He got hurt in our last year in Orlando together. But yeah. until then the guy played every game. Right. I was there, never asked out of a practice. I mean, load management, not Dwight. Every right. day, played every day, practiced every day, and played extremely well, I mean, and led a very good team um, who, as good as the players around him, and that team was well-constructed. Otis did a tremendous job, and it was a well-constructed team with very good players, but no one else is going into the Hall of Fame on that team. I'm not going. None of his teammates are going, and yet that team was in the finals. Right. You know, like, come on, give this guy – some credit. I mean, and even the Lakers chapter, the the thing people forget for one, the back end of that one Lakers season, they actually got it together and, you know, and we're playing some really good ball, but I'll never forget. I forget what point of the regular season, but going to talk to him at his locker and he pulled his phone out and he showed a picture of the, the back surgery and, and the work that, that had been done. And, and I think people never truly understood physically where he was at in the first half of that year 
And, you know, if a few things had bounced differently, I think on the back end, I think that chapter changes. And then because it didn't, and then you had a second kind of, you know, ugly exit with the way that he went to Houston. Next thing you know, now the optics and, and the PR and the image stuff with him is even more challenging. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. And the injuries have affected him. I mean, um, you know, I, I think that you you watch him over the last three or four years and he's still pretty imposing. But, I mean, come on, you remember what kind of athlete he was in his prime. I mean, right. the combination of speed, quickness, jumping ability, strength. I mean, we hadn't seen anything like it in the league since the young Shaquille O'Neal. You know, right. I mean, that was – that's where Dwight was. I mean, just so physically imposing. And now he's still strong as heck and he's still a pretty good athlete, but not, not what he was. I mean, right. the, the back injury took a lot from him and yet still had all-star seasons after that had a really good year in Charlotte playing for Steve Clifford. I mean, you know, um, he's still to me top half of the league starting center if not better than that, I mean, he's not starting for the Lakers, but um, they're in a unique situation and he's been willing to accept that role. I, I just think you've got to give him a lot of credit. Great stuff, brother. Hey, let me get you out on this. We, we didn't actually talk all that much about the nitty gritty in Orlando basketball wise. Give me your quick breakdown of just who do you think is best positioned to, to take advantage of this. And then also, to, you know, speaking of debates, what's your mindset regarding Kind of the now listen, the, the major disclaimer here is we, you know, let's assume that they get through it healthy. Let's assume we, we can have an NBA finals and crown a champion. But that discussion about, you know, whether it's an asterisk or a, a gold star, uh, given the unique challenge here, um, how do you see that? And then just team wise, you know, who you kind of handicap in here? Yeah, I don't know if it's an asterisk in terms of it being a negative, Sam. But it's, it is an asterisk in terms of it being different. Yeah. The challenges are different. This whole thing is different. This season will be remembered as different. So um, I don't think it's demeaning. Look, you play by whatever rules they have in a given year, you know, um, and this is what it is now. I think it's really, really hard to predict. It always is, but more so now because – we don't have home court advantage now. Right. To me, that is the biggest thing. Like, you know, now game seven is on a neutral floor where one team would usually have a pretty good advantage. We don't know. I mean, like even just covering it, right? I mean, we're going through a series like somebody would go down 0-2, but they're going home. Right. So you can't write them off. Well, now, I don't know. I mean, you're down 0-2. Do you look at the series differently now? And then I also wonder, like the longer players are there, do they get down 0-2 and just say, you know what, just get me out of here. Right. Like I've been in this ridiculous bubble. I haven't seen my family. Like there's all these things we don't know. Um, And so I think it's going to be as – wide open as it's ever been. I mean, you know, you think the best teams will have the best chance. I mean, not like they always do. Yeah. But I think the home court certainly leads itself to more upsets. And I certainly think it's going to change the first couple of weeks in Orlando because you've got those teams, you know, 
Memphis, Sac, New Orleans, Portland fighting to get into the playoffs. They got to be ready out of the gate on July 30th, you know, to play important games. And then you've got 13 teams, six in the East, seven in the West, who are going to be in the playoffs, not going to have to play in that play-in thing or anything. They're going to be in. And how much does seeding matter? I mean, maybe somebody wants to avoid a certain matchup, but without home court, right? like, I think those teams are going to ease into it. I said to one coach who's fighting for a playoff spot, especially your first four games in Orlando, you'd be better off playing the contenders than the other teams fighting to get in because be I think, yeah. you know, if you're Frank Vogel or Doc Rivers or, you know, Brad Stevens or Nick Nurse, you know, or Mike Budenholzer, you're going to look at it as, okay, we've got a five-and-a-half-week training camp to get ready for the first round of the playoffs, not a three-week training camp. Right. And they can ease into the thing. I think those first couple of games, you'll see them play guys fewer minutes and the whole thing where the other team's got to ramp up and be ready to go. So I think that's going to be different also. So this is stuff we've never we've never seen before. Man, these coaches have a big challenge because, you know, you prepare for this your whole career. And part of that preparation is how do you pace a team throughout a season and get them ready for the play? Oh, that's all out the window now. And the other thing we don't know is a lot of this is going to be decided on player readiness. And, you know, we hear all the stories. Everybody's in great shape. Everybody, Sam. Everybody's come back. (laughs) It's amazing how they've gotten themselves ready. It's like the start of every season. Right. Everybody's ready, but we don't know that. Right. You know, we don't know what's really gone on in terms of both physical and mental preparation. And that's going to have a, a lot to do with it. And there might be some team that is sort of down. We don't consider a true contender where they got a team full of guys that really stayed ready. They pick up some momentum in these eight seeding games and they're ready to go. And with no home court, especially, could pull up an upset in the first round. So I I think it's hard. And maybe that was all a big, long speech to absolve myself from having to make a prediction. (laughs) But but I don't know. I really don't know. Put your coaching hat on because you, you have four kids, right, Stan? Yeah. You know, in your younger years, one thing I can't relate to and that I wondered about is, like, to me, an overlooked subplot is that, okay, the players get family and friends after the first round. Coaches, GMs, staff members get family at no point. They, they, they just don't get family. Now, that could change on the back end. But for you and the way you're wired, in the middle of a playoff run, you know, did you kind of almost unofficially isolate yourself anyways during that stretch? Or was your family, you know, any sort of kind of mental health benefit for you during a playoff run? And, and the question there would be, what do you anticipate for some of these coaches? You know, Brad Stevens has been real vocal on these, uh, these calls with the NBA trying to get family into the bubble. Uh, do you see that as a factor here? I do. And look, from a basketball standpoint, here's one of the coaching standpoint. What I don't think people understand is in a lot of ways, your workload goes just this pure volume of your workload goes down in the playoffs okay. compared to what it is in a regular season. Because regular season, there's a team either the next day or the day after all the time. So you're going from one team to the next trying to prepare. Now you hit the playoffs and leading up to a series, 
there's a great deal of preparation once you're in it. You know, I go back through the film of that game, and maybe you go back through some situations in other games, but it's a little bit more limited. You had time with your family, so I certainly wasn't isolated. Um, You know, it was there was more of a heightened focus even than the regular season, but time-wise, you know, you were okay. But, yeah, I worry about the coaches, and I even worry about the players. I know they say families can go in, and if your kids are of a certain age – Maybe, but are you going to bring in a family with little kids and have them there for what? Two, three, four weeks where you're limited to the hotel room and you don't, you know, you don't have your house. There's going to be a lot of uh, the families are going to say, yeah, that sounds great. You know, we can all go there and stay in a hotel room together. Yeah. Yeah. That just sounds perfect. Listen, even the part I can relate to is we don't even have that option, but before I knew we didn't have that option. My wife, and we have a 13-year-old son and 11-year-old son, I was told in about half a second that, you know, she had zero interest in coming to join. It's just not, that lifestyle is, it's it's too much. No, that's exactly right. And so, now, my age, and with my kids all being in their 20s, yeah, I, I, I wish I could see them. You know, if I'm in there, yeah, I'd want them to be able to, to visit. Right. But again, are they going to lock in for the rest of the bubble time? No, they're going right. to come once and, hey, right. Dad, we've seen you and we're getting the hell out of here. Right. You know, right. it, it's, uh, but again, anything that we talk about, and I think you agree with me on this, Sam, it's not a great situation, but the NBA is trying to do the best they can under the circumstances. That's it. I mean, right. I don't think anybody, including Adam Silver, would say, hey, this is really good for our players and coaches and teams this is really really good it's just this is the best we have available and I think the owners and players decided they wanted to play and make back some of their money Adam's thing was how are we going to do it as safely as possible if I'm being honest I I struggle with the optics and and, and I and I sympathize with Adam because when again when they made this choice he was faced with a certain landscape and now the landscape has changed. And I think if the trends continue in Florida and all around the country, they're going to be criticized on optics alone and specifically testing because even out here in California, and I actually had a very personal thing with this this week, learning the hard way that testing is is still broken over here. You're talking about people waiting eight, nine, 10, 11 days for test uh, results, people not being able to get tested unless they have every symptom under the moon. And then meanwhile, you know, the entire NBA contingent is getting tested daily. Those optics might get worse. I agree with you though, that in terms of protecting the players and the coaches, it, it seems like they've done everything they can do and, and we'll keep tracking this thing. Stan, I'm going to let you go. Uh, here's to hoping that they throw you and I in the same hotel and maybe we can have a, a socially distanced beer a couple months from now when I get in there. But thank you so much for the time. This was awesome. Fantastic to see you. And and I'll see you on Twitter, brother. Thanks, Sam. All right, man. Be good.